What a beautiful way to celebrate the Lord's goodness and loving kindness and the gospel by seeing and observing baptisms. That was just a beautiful time together. I'm just glad we got to sing a song or two from the end of the baptism time to now because I had to recover after the Carlberg, you know, connection there. Wow, that what a beautiful testimony of God's grace in the life of the Carlberg home and all of the families that were represented with children and teenagers first hour. We had six baptisms today. Just what a spectacular display of God's goodness. Amen. I mean, what could be greater than having children and teenagers come to faith in Christ? It's exciting. Really great. Uh, You know, it reminds me a bit of what I'm about to announce, and that is I've got a good brother who is here um, from Richmond, Virginia, the lower 48, and he's been with us this weekend. And he he reminds me of when I came to faith in Christ because we came into, came to faith in Christ at the same time. He was a freshman in college and I was in high school, but we had grown up in youth group in high school and we had kind of a before Christ friendship and then we both got saved and a couple other buddies got saved at the same time. So these guys are coming up here for some reason to, to say hello, but uh, this is a good friend. It's Chris DeRocco. Why don't you stand up and uh, it's just good to have him here this morning. He's here as part of a, a training time where in Tacoma, Washington, you know, which is just a few hours away by plane. Anyway, he came there for some training because he's part of a network of churches and uh, is a church planner in Richmond. And so we've had a great time together kind of painting the town and showing him the sites, uh, you know, some simple sites. We went to Ocean View with the kids to go sledding. I thought he and Logan were never going to come back after they shot down from one of those shoots. Uh, you know what I'm talking about? The incredible thing five minutes away that is free and kids somehow survive it as they go down. I, I go down too. Anyway, but Carson, my two-year-old, one of my twins, right? He grabbed my ski helmet because Chris and I went skiing afterwards uh, at Hilltop, right? That dangerous slope, Hilltop. Anyway, but which was a blast. But Carson grabbed my helmet, and I'm so glad he did because all of a sudden we turned this way, right? And Carson's down, right? Backwards like this, eyes as big as saucers. And somehow he made the bottom turn and lived. So uh, anyway, another display of God's grace in the life of families. And Anyway, but when I went down there, he didn't want to come back up. So I just think, no, he wasn't born in Alaska, but he was born for Alaska. Amen? So we're excited about that. Well, let's open our Bibles. Start in Luke chapter 13 this morning because Luke chapter 13 is verses 1 through 5 is a section from Scripture that is going to lead us to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And I wanted to just touch upon Luke chapter 13, but something happened in my study where I really believe the Lord wanted me to stay there a little bit longer. And so you're going to see the yield of my study in that this morning. You know, over the last decade in this new millennium, we have observed several cataclysmic events. And it's almost like the cataclysmic event that just happened with the earthquake in the Republic of Haiti finished out our decade. These events have marked our culture. September 11th, 2001, we all remember probably where we were, where we were watching Either it happened or the aftermath of the terrorist attack on tax on the World Trade Center. And we watched those TV monitors where 
these massive buildings that represent so much to our country were melting before our eyes and people were dying. They were suicide attacks done by a terrorist group called Al-Qaeda where they hijacked commercial jet airliners, two that crashed into the twin towers, killing everyone on board, collapsing both buildings, and then the third airliner that went into the Pentagon in Arlington, Virginia, and then the fourth plane that was diverted away from D.C. ultimately to crash in Shanksville, rural Pennsylvania. As a result of the attacks, 2,973 victims died. It was cataclysmic. It was a shock to our system and caused us to say, why God? Why do we have these catastrophes? Second one I thought of is, was the tsunamis that wiped out so much of the coastline in India, the Great Indian Ocean Tsunami, December 26, 2004. A U.S. Geological Survey estimated that the 9.0 earthquake that caused the tsunami was like 23,000 Hiroshima-type atomic bombs going off. It's just cataclysmic. And the waves were moving at the speed of a jet airliner toward the coastline. And ultimately, at the end of the day, 150,000 people were dead or lost. Millions more were homeless making this one of the most destructive, if not the most destructive events and tsunami events in history. It's incredible. I I was looking at some of the research of what the tectonic plates were doing under the surface to create this kind of event. It was a result of a rupture that was more than 600 miles long. Just incredible. Trillion, a trillion tons of rock were moved along hundreds of miles that caused the planet to shudder. Our entire earth shuddered for a moment. It's one of the largest earthquakes ever recorded. Number three, Hurricane Katrina. August 23rd, 2005, Katrina was the costliest hurricane in the U.S. It was one of the five deadliest in the history of the United States. It was the sixth, the strongest overall. Hurricane Katrina, it formed over the Bahamas. You'll remember that. And some lives were claimed in southern Florida. And it was creeping around the Gulf of Mexico. And then it ramped up to a Category 3. And it hit Texas. But when it hit Louisiana and then New Orleans, it got really bad. You remember that the loss of life and property damage really ramped up when it hit New Orleans and flooded because the levee system broke down, creating mass hysteria, and it was catastrophic. At least 1,836 people died in the actual hurricane and subsequent floods. It's the deadliest U.S. hurricane since 1928. Now, January 12th, 2010, the Haitian earthquake. It's noteworthy. It's shocking. It's something that has grabbed all of our attention because of modern technology. And the more sophisticated technology gets, the more up close and personal we become with it, right? We've seen the screaming moms stand over their dead children. 
We've seen the maimed. We've seen people who've been crushed. We've even read in our newspaper of people that have been pulled out of the rubble since yesterday who have survived, who've said, I'm here because God wants me to still be here. Its epicenter was approximately 16 miles west of Port-au-Prince, the capital, capital, capital of Haiti. The earthquake occurred eight miles underneath the Earth's surface. surface. The International Red, Cro- Red Cross estimated that about three million people were affected by the quake. The Haitian Interior Mission anticipated that the disaster would claim between 100 and 200,000 lives. Landmark buildings, as you know, were destroyed like the presidential palace. Many countries have responded, and you know a lot of relief and effort has come, but it's been very confusing. It's been very difficult to know who is in charge and how to prioritize help in Haiti. One shocking soundbite I saw from the Internet was this. Port-au-Prince's morgues were quickly overwhelmed The Haitian government announced on the 21st of January that over 80,000 bodies had been buried in mass graves. They were comparing it to the graves that were dug in mass at World War II with Hitler's killings. Have you seen those pictures? It's horrible. It's shocking. It's shocking. We've seen tent villages that have been created where people are just trying to to survive it. They're just trying to make it. One spokesperson from the UN for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs said, this is a historic disaster. We have never been confronted with such a disaster in UN memory. So, with our modern technology, with streaming video, with YouTube, we're up close and personal to this. And I think for some, Christian and non-Christian, people are saying, why did this have to happen? Why God? Why this catastrophe? If there's anybody who should be able to give an appropriate biblical and balanced response, it needs to be the church. It needs to be Christians because we have God's word. Can we know all the ins and outs as to why things happen? No, God knows. But we need to be able to give a word of grace to people. That God is on the throne, that he is in charge, that he is indeed loving and caring, and he is sovereign over our world. National and political leaders over every event that I've listed and more give their responses publicly. Some religious leaders, like one that will remain anonymous, but you probably will know who I'm talking about, said recently that the reason for Haiti having the earthquake and the mass destruction was because Haiti made a pact with the devil. That Haiti had made a political bad, politically bad move, and when they moved away from the French and Napoleon III, they swore a pact with the devil. And they said, we will serve you if you get us free from the prince. He said, true story. And so the devil said, okay, it's a deal. That was his insight and perspective for why this happened. 
to Haiti. Now, I'm not here to put that person on trial, but I am here to say I believe we need to do better than that, and we need to go to God's Word to respond biblically and to try to offer people true hope and true direction and guidance for who God is and how we are to respond to catastrophes. And ultimately, I'm saying all that I'm saying this morning as a lead-in to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, because that is the passage that is probably the most full-orbed passage in the New Testament regarding the day of the Lord, which will be a worldwide cataclysmic event. So I'm going to look at what does Jesus say in terms of how are we supposed to respond to cataclysmic events that are not explained to us like 1 Thessalonians 5 is explained to us, where there isn't a direct scriptural reference as to why suffering is happening in Haiti. Well, let's start with Jesus' words in Luke chapter 13, verses 1 through 5. Luke writes, There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed them? Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the offenders who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. It's easy to frame this section up. Jesus is basically describing two catastrophes, two real-time catastrophes to these people who were inquiring about them to their teacher, their rabbi, Jesus. Jesus poses two catastrophes with two questions with two answers. The first catastrophe was a political bludgeoning. You might at first read think, well, what was the big deal about this with the Galileans? Well, the Galileans were pilgrim worshipers who were showing up to Passover. It was the one time that they could show up and actually offer sacrifices in the temple in Jerusalem. Otherwise, lay people would not be welcome directly in the temple worship. So they were there. And as a political move, Pilate, in the name of Roman tyranny and dictatorship, slaughtered these pilgrim worshipers right in the midst of Passover. You have the slaughtering of lambs as worship to God. And so Pilate jumps on that and slaughters the people, mingling blood together, sacrificial blood with their own. It was humiliating, it was blasphemy, and it was horrific. Pilate must have assumed they were seditious zealots trying to overthrow the Roman government. One pastor said it this way, Pilate had his soldiers fall upon them when they least expected. In the ensuing melee, human blood mixed with lamb's blood in an appalling bouquet. It's a horrific scene. The example begs the question from the people, why did this happen, Jesus? Were these people worse? Were they sinfully worse than the rest that they would undergo this kind of bludgeoning? They were angry. 
And they were assuming that Jesus probably would begin to point fingers, maybe towards Rome or Pilate and say, yeah, how dare he do this? How dare he do this to these Galilean worshipers? Or on the other hand, maybe they were wanting Jesus to point the finger at the Galileans and say, you know what? They probably had this coming. They're showing up and they're treasonous. And Pilate knows more than we know, and so they had it coming. They deserved this kind of retribution. They must have been guilty because of what happened to them. What's Jesus' response? Verse 3. Now, let me just warn you. In the original language, the no is the most emphatic, strongest no that you could possibly find in the original. So let me read it that way. Verse 3. No, I tell you, no! changes the subject, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. No, no, not indeed. It's used of questions when the affirmative is expected. And then suddenly you say, no, Jesus is saying, no, it couldn't have been stronger. Daryl Bach, a Dallas Theological Seminary prof, he said that Jesus doesn't even pick up their question about the spiritual condition of the Galileans. J.C. Ryle, one of my heroes from the late 1800s, preached in the U.K. He said this regarding what Jesus said. He said, though these Galileans did die a sudden death, it's as if Jesus is saying, what is that to you? Consider your own ways. Consider your own heart. Jesus is turning the tables. Here's kind of a Jeff Crotz modern translation. It's like Jesus said, yes, they died. What's it to you? You know why? Because we're all sinners. We're all sinners. Jesus is leveling the playing field here and using that catastrophe to teach these inquirers a lesson. We're all sinners. Romans 3, 23. For all have sinned and what? Fall short of the glory of God. She's using rhetorical questions to say that they were missing the point and that these inquirers are no better off than those who suffered a catastrophe. Now, we know the world is cursed. Genesis 3, 17 through 19. This is right after the fall of Adam in the garden. And God is saying to Adam, cursed is the ground because of you. We know that there's worldwide implications from that statement to the ground that we live on. And our world is cursed and bad things happen. We pray for people who are stricken with disease and cancer and who die, who seem to die prematurely. We pray for situations that are unexpected. We observe cataclysmic events where we see families ripped apart. And we see what's happened in the Republic of Haiti. And we need to understand that we dare not disobey the Lord and his will as we observe these catastrophes and begin to become judgmental towards others. Jesus instead is saying, look into your own heart first instead of becoming judgmental towards people. Don't try to play God. Don't try to understand what has not been specifically explained to us in Scripture. That's the point. It's the first catastrophe. Let's look at the second catastrophe here. The second catastrophe. This is the catastrophe of random deaths. 
random deaths, verses 4 and 5. Or those 18 on whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? Okay, here it is. This is more emphatic, actually, than the first no, just in the way it's sized up. Verse 5, no, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Jesus has really loaded this, loaded with this no here, saying no. What's interesting here is that for a tower to fall on 18 people, from a human perspective, really looks like a random event. Now, we know God is sovereign, but Jesus is bringing up this scenario in comparison to the other scenario where the Galileans were slain to say, listen, if you are kind of caught up in believing that those Galileans somehow probably were treasonous and they probably did have it going coming to them, then at least look at the 18 who died where something fell on them. In no way can you say, wow, they were doing something specifically that we can point to where they deserved for a tower to fall on them and kill them. That reminds me of when I talked to my brother one time years and years ago. He was talking to me on his cell phone or cordless way back when, and he was out in his front yard, and his kids were scooting around on their scooters, you know, playing around happily, scooting as, as kids like to scoot, right? And they're in their driveway, and my brother Johnny lives in Georgia where pine trees grow tall and skinny at the top. And he had about, I don't know, he has about 10 or 12 pine trees in his front yard. And at the very top of one of his pine trees, about 75 feet high in the air, a portion of that pine tree, probably about a 10-foot portion of it, cracked in the wind. And it's about a foot in diameter around this tree that's like a pole fell down right on top of his three-year-old daughter's knees, just missing the knees and hitting the scooter part. Just, I mean, just the amazing precision of that drop as she's scooting is just mind-boggling. And my brother was on the phone with me and he was saying, oh, 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 okay, all right, she's all right. You know, I mean, it was, it was just one of those, like, wow, you know, she, her neck could have been snapped. I mean, you don't even think about all of those things in the moment because everything worked out. But wow, that was one of those events where you think, from a human perspective, my niece wasn't doing anything to warrant that kind of punishment had she been killed. I mean, she wasn't sinfully scooting, so God, as some fly-swatting God is going, aha, I'm going to strike this tree and drop it on that little girl. That's not the way God works, and that's Jesus' point. We don't need to think that way about God. We need to examine our hearts. That's the point. That's why cataclysmic events, that's how they can become redemptive to us. That's why God brings them into our lives for examination. For us to do heart soul surgery first, rather than looking down our noses on a people or a people group trying to play God. Is God sovereign? Yes. Does God know the beginning from the end? Yes. Is God working and controlling all of these events for his own purposes and glory? Yes. Is the world under judgment? Yes. Are we all sinful and deserved deserved of hell. Yes. Yes. But can we get into the mind of God as to why he's allowing 
things to happen specifically. No, not without a specific word from Scripture. We know from the Old Testament, from prophets, how God raised up nations and crushed nations and allowed things to happen in specific. We know from the book of Job, because we can read the beginning and the end of the story and we can see it from heaven's perspective that Job was being tested because of God and Satan counseling together and God allowing Satan to work against Job. We've got some commentary there, but other than having a scriptural word from God as to exactly why things are happening, we need to be careful. And we need to look at these cataclysmic events as opportunities to shock us out of our routine and to say, you know what, one day there is a judgment that is ultimately coming that will be worldwide, and that will be the day of the Lord. And so I need to examine myself, and I also need to be an evangelist to reach other people and say, we need to be in Christ, because in Christ you're safe from an ultimate judgment where there is no question as to why that judgment has come. Some people could have been tempted to say, well, you know, the temple that fell at Siloam was actually a religious temple because it was by the east wall in Jerusalem. And, you know, they were repairing the aqueduct system over there. And historically, people kind of create this scenario where this religious symbol was coming down as like the hand of God on people. But really, Jesus was refusing to play their game in verse 5. Jesus could not have put it any more forcefully, according to one pastor, those who died were the -the run-of-the-mill sinners like the rest of us. Verse 5, Jesus said, no, don't think that way. No. And he uses that to turn the tables to call these people to repentance, specifically Israelites. This is a warning first and foremost to them because verses 6 through 9 is a parable or explanation about judgment that would be coming towards this nation. Verse 6 compares the nation of Israel to a fig tree that was planted in a vineyard that didn't produce figs. It was like Israel who had become barren, who'd become lifeless, and who was rejecting Jesus, their Messiah. And verse 7 says that the vine dresser calls for this tree to be cut down and says, why should it use up the ground? What is it there for? Look at verses 8 and 9. He answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. What's Jesus' point? Israel was still under a small window of grace, but the window was closing. Now that's the the first and specific application. But verse 5 is expansive. And as you would set verse 5 in the context of all of what the Bible teaches on judgment, verse 5 says to us that cataclysmic events are warnings of a judgment that is to come. And in the meantime, you better not judge the people that the cataclysmic event happened to. You need to look at your own heart first. It's a judgment on the entire world that is coming because the entire world is under the curse and all have sinned. You know, what Jesus is doing is he's getting a message across to these people by deconstructing their self-righteousness. This is something, let me just say this, this is something you need to do when you're trying to win someone to Christ. 
Now, we try to win people to Christ who are unchurched. And I think we also try to win people to Christ sometimes who have been in church a long time. You know, people who they, they talk spiritually and, and they sound biblical. But as you hear them talk, you can begin to see a construction in their thinking where they are trusting in themselves to get themselves to heaven. It's called works righteousness, right? You know, all other religions apart from true Christianity are works righteousness religions trying, where people are trying to earn their way to heaven. So what you got to do is you got to figure out how people are trusting in themselves to get to heaven and try to deconstruct it. And that's what Jesus is doing. He's just trying to get them to see that they're being judgmental by trying to pinpoint motives and say, look, you know, those people, they must be bad. They must be sinners because look at what Pilate did to them. Or look at those people who the tower fell on. They must be horrible. And it's this sort of works righteousness where you're trying to climb the ladder to heaven on the backs of other people by putting them down. And that's not what we need to do. And what Jesus is doing is he's deconstructing their self-righteousness and saying, you need to repent. Otherwise, you're going to perish. That's the issue. And catastrophes give us that kind of segue into the gospel. When we talk about Haiti and we talk about what's going on there, we have the greatest opportunity to talk about God's real reason for suffering. Why he allows these things to happen. And we can so easily begin to show the grace of God in the midst of suffering. If you're thinking through a gospel lens. You know, we dare not become like Bildad, Eliphaz, and Zophar. Remember who those people are? Those are the biblical counselors of the book of Job. You know, the best counsel that they gave was when they just sat down and were quiet. You ever think about it? Uh, they, they saw how bad off Job was. He had lost everything and his family. And they just sat there for seven days silently in front of them. That was their best counseling method. But Eliphaz had to begin to speak. In Job 4, 6 through 7, he begins to give this counsel and say, Is not your fear of God your confidence? Listen to how spiritual this sounds, right? Is not your fear of God your confidence and the integrity of your ways your hope? You know what that is? That's, that's peanut butter spread language of, that means it tastes really good or, or it's, real, it's buttered really, really well of, Hey, don't we, shouldn't we all just be trusting in ourselves? Well, that's from the pit. That's, that, that sends you to hell. And he says, remember, who, who that it was who was, was innocent that ever perished? Or where were the upright cut off? Well, we know someone who was innocent who was crushed for our iniquities, don't we? That's the gospel. This is inverted. This is where Eliphaz is saying, look, you need to be trusting in yourself and there must be something that you're hiding because look how your family and life have fallen apart. John 9, 2 through 3 is the same lesson. And the disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? It's a wrong way to think. It's a wrong way to view suffering. And Jesus answered and he said... It was not this man who sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. It's the right answer. Catastrophic events 
like we've been seeing and witnessing and reading about, they peel back the veneer of everyday living. And it peels back even the veneer of self-righteousness. It shows us a window into eternity. It shakes us awake. It's, it's rattling our cages where we can step outside of the Ecclesiastes mindset where vanity is vanity, all is vanity, and we're just cycling around, waking up, going to bed. And it screams to us, it should scream to us, that judgment is coming. It's not our opportunity to judge people. It's our opportunity to see God as sovereign and ruling and how we're all responsible for our sins and that there will be a worldwide judgment that will come one day. We can't give a definitive word as to why God allowed that to happen there or why God has allowed things to happen to us as a nation. We can't give a definitive word there on that, but we can give a definitive word based on 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 through 11, that the day of the Lord is coming and that all those who are outside of Christ will be under judgment. All those who are outside of Christ will experience the flames of fire like we saw at 9-11. The melting of steel and destruction. It's a picture of what's going to come worldwide. The levees bursting all of a sudden and people being wiped out and impoverished and hurt. The crushing, sudden waves of tsunamis that wiped out whole villages. The earthquake that's caused so much damage and death in Haiti. All of these things are pictures, are illustrations of a worldwide event that's coming. The day of the Lord. I was talking to one of our elders this week about this. We just were kind of bouncing it back and forth in our minds. And he said, and I agree, we just need to have the right answers. We need to be able to portray a true vision of God in the midst of suffering. God didn't wake up one day and say, you know, I am just over the top upset with the Republic of Haiti, so I'm this fly-swatting God, I'm going to just wipe them out just because I'm mad. No, God is sovereign and he's ruling and he's perfect and he's good and he's in control and nothing took him by surprise. And he's innocent. Nothing evil comes from him or goes to him. And so we have to trust a sovereign and good God, even if we can't nail down precisely why that suffering is happening there. We all deserve hell. And we know that God is good and that by his grace we can be rescued from ultimate judgment that's to come. You know, on the cross we see a perfect display of God's sovereignty and suffering, don't we? God, in the council of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, sent the Son, the Son going willingly, the Son being energized by the Spirit as He walked this earth, living a perfect life. And then you have Isaiah 53.10, which shows the Father's role in the cross. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush Him. He, Jesus, He, the Father, has put Him, Jesus, to grief. That was a cataclysmic event where all the full weight of the wrath of God was placed against his son Jesus Christ. And Jesus bore our suffering and our punishment to give us grace. And we can explain God in these 
ways with the gospel. And that's where we should turn our conversation to. That's where we should point people towards in the midst of this suffering. I used to hear it said that 9-11 was like a gospel softball tossed to us. And I think this earthquake is the same thing. It's our opportunity to speak biblically, to say what we can say, and then to point people to trust a sovereign and good God in the midst of suffering. Instead of finger-pointing and speculating, let's focus on the gospel. What I want to do is have you turn over to 1 Thessalonians now. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. And I just want to read it to you. I feel like Jesus' teaching from Luke 13 will warm us up to read verses 1 through 11 in an appropriate context. Follow as I read. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or are asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. This morning is really a lead-in to next week where we'll unpackage these 11 verses. But I want us now, as we try to take home this message into our hearts and lives, to look at a few take-home points. And these take-home points are basically prayer requests for our own lives and for the Republic of Haiti. Let's look at the first one. Number one, pray we will give God glory by heeding these warnings of future judgment. It's an opportunity to glorify God, not to doubt Him. And we should pray that for ourselves. Number two, pray our hearts will have pity and compassion on the suffering people of Haiti. And, as we've talked about, repent if you have a judgmental spirit. If you look in your bulletins, there's a great opportunity to give to some relief effort groups that are targeting Haiti and helping them. A couple boards that we have recognized as a church leadership as safe, good ways to give our money and resources towards the relief effort. The International Mission Board, Samaritan's Purse, and the American Red Cross. You can choose to do it in different ways and serve and give, but we wanted to at least offer those as opportunities for you to give toward this need. 
Number three, pray for the church there. Pastors are reported dead, church buildings destroyed, and Christians are grieving. We need to pray for the local church. We need to pray for the evangelical church there because it's their opportunity to live a life. And I'm going to skip to the next point. Live a life like the Thessalonians did for the church to stand up and have a godly testimony. I think it's my fourth point. Pray that churches will stand firm in faith, hope, and love, having the testimony the Thessalonians had, sorrow mingled with comfort. Remember, the church was known for being in the midst of suffering, a church who had faith and hope and love that was real and standing the test. And that's what we need to pray for in Haiti. You know, by the way, I have these take-home points, which you can use as prayer requests, already printed off for you over at that table, and you can pick them up throughout the week in the office. I think also you can get them online as well these days. My next point, pray the body of Christ will be generous toward the church and Republic of Haiti, helping them in their time of need. Next point, pray God will deliver many from sin and Satan. Over 80% have nothing to do with the evangelical church, and roughly 50% of the people's religion is voodoo. We know that's absolutely true. Next point, pray the city of Port-au-Prince will be rebuilt. I took this quote from a pastor Online, prior to the earthquake, Haiti was the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere with 80% of the people under the poverty line and 54% in abject poverty with a gross domestic product per capita of only $1,300 with two-thirds of the labor force not even having a formal job. Pray for the government. Next point, as many of their officials have died and their buildings have been ruined. We need to pray for governing authorities there to be some rebuilding pray for the safety of the people with the prospect that dangerous criminals are loose with jails and prisons that have been emptied without police to retain them it's a dangerous time just think in terms of being a family right there right now we need to pray and have hearts of compassion last point pray for the children in general since they make up roughly half of haiti's population It's important. It's important for us to be compassionate, to be gracious, to not judge, and to trust a sovereign God who is in control. And then, out of that, to call people to repent and realize that there is a coming day of judgment and we can be safe in Jesus Christ. And so we need to invite people to be safe in Jesus together. Let's stand as we close and dismiss for our time. If you're sitting here and you still need Jesus, even as we read 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 through 11, and you need Christ, I would just implore you to fall on your face before him and believe. Follow Jesus Christ. You've seen children testify in the waters of baptism that they were obedient to follow Jesus, to not trust in their own works to get them to heaven, but Jesus Christ alone. My prayer is if you don't have Christ, that today would be the day where you indeed trust him. I'm going to invite my good friend Chris DeRocco to come up. He's a pastor from Richmond, Virginia, and I've asked him to pray for us as we close our morning worship and to give a little benediction. Yeah, let's, let's pray together. God, I'm, I'm so grateful that you 
you gave us this word this morning. God, you brought this word to us. God, I'm so thankful that you do not leave us alone in our self-righteousness. But God, that you came this morning in your word to remind us that, God, we should take heed to ourselves. God, thinking that we stand by our own merits and our own effort before you. God, we say this morning together that it is by your righteousness and your righteousness alone, God, that we have any sense of safety before you. Lord, if we were honest in our sin, Father, we're the ones who deserve to be crushed by an earthquake, not them. God, in view of our sins, we don't deserve one more moment. Our hearts shouldn't beat one more second. Father, whether we've been alive eight minutes, eight months, or 80 years, we've lived longer than we deserve. God, thank you for your grace this morning. Thank you, God, for not destroying us in our sin and instead destroying your son in our place. God, if you should number sins, who could stand? God, we're so grateful. God, you were so grateful for Jesus taking our punishment. God, help us now turn because you have loved us so much. God, help us now turn away from our selfishness and our pride and our selfish, myopic, self-centered existence. God, help us with these points. Help us with this call to action. Help us with this call to love you and to love your people. Help us give. Help us love. Help us care in a way that brings glory to your name. Because you loved us even while we were yet enemies. God, we ask now for your grace to obey you. God, just as you've called us into this place by your grace, thank you, God, now for sending us out by your same grace to live a life of selfless abandonment to you and of love towards others. God, help us this day to repent. We must repent and to rejoice in you as we must rejoice Thank you, God, for your word this morning. And everybody said, amen. Amen. You all are dismissed. Pray as you go, the Lord would bless you, the Lord would keep you, that his grace would shine upon you and continue to give you peace. Amen.